You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you're challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas begins a new series, To Marry or Not to Marry, now looking at the permanence of marriage. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Want to win a chance for a free tour of Israel? From March 1st to June 8th, Douglas's new website subscribers have the chance to be entered into a draw for a free tour. There are two ways to win. You can become a new website member or ask a friend to sign up. Then email confirmation of the subscriptions by replying to Douglas's newsletter. There's no limit to the number of entries. Sign up five friends, be entered five times. The winner will be announced in early July. Now here's today's teaching. This is lesson one in a series on divorce and remarriage. Many years ago, I believe this was the beginning of 1984, just a few days into the year, I was with a friend and we were traveling in Thailand and we found a Church of Christ in Bangkok, the capital city. I remember speaking to a couple of the leaders and asking them lots of questions, not just about their culture and their language and things that I would naturally be interested in. I wanted to know what it's like with um, their congregation and our, our, is it encouraging work? How's the work? This, after all, is a Buddhist country. And I asked them, what is controversial for you? And they said, well, the biggest controversy is divorce and remarriage, which puzzled me. And I replied, but I'd be very surprised if there is much divorce in Thailand. They said, no, no, there's almost no divorce at all. But it's a problem in America, and our funding depends on where we land on that issue. So even though it's not an issue for us, we have to choose a side. Oh, wow. And the truth is, it was a big issue in America. Not in the year 1900. There is very little divorce. But with the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s, and I would say the broader sexual revolution and the homosexual revolution, uh, understandings of the family and marriage and divorce changed uh, uh, tremendously. There's certainly no shortage of articles and books on the topics. Friends of mine have written papers. I've helped to write a joint paper on it. You know, it's a study of much academic focus, but this is sensitive. It's not just an academic issue. I understand that. And for some of you listening to this series, it's very personal. And you're listening for clarity and you're looking for hope. And I understand that different congregations may give very differing types of counsel. One church is stricter, another one's looser. Um, What's the Bible actually say? You know, all marriages go through hard times. In our marriage, we've been through hard, we've been married 35 years. We've had some hard times, but we love each other. We're together. But in the past, there was, it was not easy in Western culture for someone to end a marriage if it was unbearably difficult. And I imagine 100 years ago, or let's say 120, let's go back to 1900, there were probably a lot of people who wanted to divorce, but they couldn't do it. Uh, The disapproval of peers and family would just be too great. The pressure from society in general made it not worth the effort. Interestingly, in the early days of my own church, we used to say that we don't have divorce. We made several claims. Okay, one, the first two were absolutely true. Uh, Come and visit, you'll see young people, not just old people. Come and visit, and you'll see we're not just white. We've got every color imaginable. Those were fair. But to say we never had divorce, 
as I learned, wasn't quite the truth. Because typically what happened is, if someone was really messing up the marriage, he or maybe she would be pressured to repent. And if they didn't repent, they'd leave the church. Or if someone divorced, we just consider them to be non-Christians because a real Christian wouldn't divorce, right? As though they'd never been part of the body. And this must have been very confusing because through the years, sadly, I know many people who've divorced, and that includes some people whose weddings I performed. I'm certainly, as a Christian leader, sorry for the confusing signals I've given, and I know others have done too. Sometimes I've been too harsh, sometimes too soft, and frequently not consistent. Another claim we would make, of course, was the you've heard of the 50% divorce, the, the myth of the 50% divorce rate. I don't know when that was generated, but it was a statistical error. It goes back decades. Uh, yeah, it looked like uh, half of marriages would end a divorce. That was probably in the late 70s, early 80s. But that really is a myth. We, we painted a picture that really wasn't true. I want to speak accurately with biblical faithfulness, and I hope to give hope. When marriages are in trouble or when input has been confusing, to sort through the ambiguity to, to state what the scriptures teach and don't teach. And I realize that not everyone's going to agree with me. In fact, I know already some people don't agree because some people would say that if you allow any remarriage, well, then you're a false teacher and those who follow you are condemned to hell. And yes, I've received threatening letters on that for years. So I realize we may not all agree, but let's respect one another, listen to one another. I could be wrong, but I've read... Uh, a large number of books and articles, and I'm really trying. Listen, and don't judge me too quickly. See if you think I'm right. What we'll be doing uh, in this first lesson is looking at some background, important background information for the issue. Then we'll talk about uh, wedding vows and how they're connected with grounds for divorce. And then the issue of whether a, a, a marriage is permanent or can it end before uh, one or both spouses die. In our second talk, we'll get into the Old Testament. In the third, we'll get into the New Testament, and there'll be a little bit more material after that. So let's talk about the background. In ancient times, of course, uh, the vulnerable were really at risk, much less so in the Bible. The Bible has a huge emphasis on looking out for the foreigner, the poor person, the orphan, the widow. But in the ancient world, it was really rough for women and children especially. Harsh treatment, infanticide, abortion, uh, extreme disrespect towards women. Uh, adultery was a capital offense. The husband would be the one expected to carry it out. Now, there was a death penalty in Leviticus. I'm not sure that it was ever carried out because normally uh, death penalties were commuted to financial, uh, for financial settlements, except for murder one. That's the way they seem to have done it back then. Divorce in the ancient world was easy and it favored the man. Not that different to uh, modern divorce in Islam, where divorce is affected by the man saying three times, I divorce you. It was notorious a few years back when um, a, a man divorced his wife. The final time, the final I divorce you came through text. He, he texted her and legally he was free now. In the ancient world, women were abandoned. And then they were sometimes reclaimed by their husbands. So a woman couldn't remarry easily because the husband could come back for her property, her money, come back for the children, or even for her. And there were some laws that 
that helped women, particularly, let's say, women who uh, had a little bit more uh, clout, a little bit more capital. Uh, if a woman was divorced, she could, if, if she was neglected, I should say, uh, she could divorce, but then she'd have to wait five years before remarrying. Of course, the question would be, uh, you know, who can, who can live like that for five years without remarriage in a culture where to be without a man was um, highly problematic. Let's fast forward a bit to the New Testament world. In the Roman world, the word divorce is the word separation. I remember coming across that. I was, I was, reading, I was reading the Greek New Testament, and I had a hunch that, well, what is the Latin? Because so many of our thoughts are determined by Latin language of the medieval Catholic Church. And I was pretty sure that divortium was the word for separation. It is. Divorce just means separation. Remarriage in the ancient world was common. In fact, when it wasn't happening enough, the government might get involved. Augustus Caesar, the first emperor of the Roman Empire, first century BC, made it a law. There were actually multiple laws. It was a duty for all Roman men aged 25 to 60 and Roman women aged 20 to 50 to be married. You have to be married or you're in violation of the law. Widows could remain unmarried for two years, divorcees for 18 months, but they were expected to remarry. That was a surprise to me. Now, how consistently was this enforced? I don't know. Uh, but I think there was probably a lot of weight behind it because uh, there, were, there, there were more and more people staying single, uh, less and less stability in the family, and it really worried the rulers. And so that's why these laws were enacted. In contrast, the laws of uh, marriage and remarriage, divorce, are different in Judaism. Now, we'll see this more in the next talk, but let me just give you a little preview. In the Old Testament, there's no time limit. If a marriage ends, you don't have to wait a number of years to begin again. Uh, there was a divorce certificate, Deuteronomy 24. I used to have an, a wrong attitude towards that scripture. Because remember Jesus' question in Matthew 19, where he stands on this issue, and he says, well, Moses allowed this because of hardness of heart. And I was thinking the law was bad. This regulation was, was wrong. I think he's speaking of the hardness of heart of those who wreck marriages. The divorce certificate was a good thing, and we'll see that uh, uh, several times in this series. The Old Testament assumes, by the way, not only divorce, but also polygamy. Neither is criticized. Now, not many people have multiple wives, kings, very rich people like Abraham, but normally it was one man, one woman, uh, in accordance with the, the original pattern of Genesis. There were certainly greater rights for women within marriage and remarriage. And with the divorce certificate, that allowed her to have a clean break. And these divorce certificates would normally end with the words, you are now free to marry any man you wish. Now, Judaism, by the time of Jesus, had added expectations and regulations, unfortunately. And let me mention four of them. One expectation was that everyone should marry. Now, we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't fall into that, even though our families may pressure us, sadly. Our friends may tease us if we're single. But Jesus taught very clearly that it's better to stay single if you can. And the Apostle Paul said, if you can remain celibate, that's a great gift from God. But in Jewish culture, people were expected to marry and to procreate. 
if the marriage had no issue, not bumps, I mean no children, then uh, the man could divorce his wife and find someone who could give him children. He didn't always realize that it was the man's problem at least half the time. If you were widowed or divorced, there was an expectation to remarry. Um, same as the Roman world. Unless you were quite old, remarriage was an expectation. Paul, the apostle, speaks in 1 Timothy 5 of widows, for example, and says that if up to age 60, they should consider remarriage. Another expectation in Judaism of Jesus' time was that if there was adultery, that kind of scandal, then you have to divorce your spouse. Now, how do we know these things? Well, we have information from passages in the Bible, a handful of Old Testament passages, a handful of passages in the Gospels, one chapter in 1 Corinthians. The Bible doesn't answer every possible question. There's no comprehensive teaching. Although we would like there to be, it's not. But we also have information, data, from documents outside the Bible. For example, uh, documents that were translated that were found in a storeroom in a synagogue in Cairo. Dead Sea Scroll fragments dealing with divorce. Newly discovered divorce certificates from the first and second centuries AD. Documents in Samaritan. They had their own culture and uh, faith. But, and these documents include marriage contracts. A couple of hundred papyruses in Greek, Latin, and Aramaic touching on marriage and divorce. And a lot of evidence what the rabbis taught in the first century, the rabbinic evidence. And I'll refer to these other sources occasionally throughout this series. But realizing that the contributions of history uh, and archaeology, the scholars who find and then translate these documents, uh, can really help us understand better. Now, let's talk about marriage vows. And after that, the permanence of marriage, and then we'll end this introductory lesson. Historically, marriage vows have been considered as contracts. Failure to feed, to clothe, to love one's spouse is unfaithfulness. A scholar in Cambridge, uh, this is in Tyndale House, uh, in, his name is David Instone Brewer, has affected my thinking. I've read a stack of books on this topic, and I really like his books. Says Instone Brewer, Marriage in the ancient Near East was contractual involving payments, agreed stipulations, and penalties. If either partner broke the stipulations of the contract, the innocent partner could opt for divorce and keep the dowry. Exact parallels to these practices are found in the Pentateuch. Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. So these vows are reflected in biblical passages like Ephesians 5, where Christ takes care of the church. He's the groom. She's the bride. In Ezekiel 16, where God is the, is the uh, husband and faithless Judah is the wife. Wedding vows have hardly changed for a thousand years, even in English. And the essence of the vows are still uh, nearly identical to what was practiced in the time of Christ and earlier. When my wife and I were married in London, 1985, I said something like this. I, Douglas, take you, Victoria, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day on, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. Those aren't just words. That's a series of promises which I intended to keep. And 
she made similar promises. Why, why talk about wedding vows in the context of divorce? This actually should be somewhat obvious because it's unfaithfulness to one's vows, infidelity to one's spouse, breaking promises that are made that constitute grounds for divorce. Now, I realize that in Catholicism, there has to be a death of a spouse. You can't just get a divorce. They have the doctrine of annulment, pretending the Marriage never really happened. That's been around since 350, thanks to Augustine. That's trapped a lot of people. But in conservative Protestant churches, normally the, the uh, someone is allowed to have a, a new marriage if the spouse commits adultery or if the spouse is a non-Christian and walks away. Desertion. You cannot remarry, no matter how bad things are, unless there's adultery or unless one of the spouses just you know, walks away. Not until... Uh, the death of a spouse, which leads to a, a strange um, irony that if you killed your spouse, of course, you'd go to jail, but eventually you'd be out and you'd be forgiven. Presumably, you could remarry, but you couldn't remarry. Uh, you couldn't divorce. You'd have to wait for her to die. Now, that sounds strange. It, it should, uh, because when we have a position that doesn't quite make sense, I think it should raise a flag. The strictest view isn't always the most holy view. I mean, the Pharisees made life hard on people in all kinds of areas. For someone to be trapped in a marriage, which has been described by some as a life sentence with the cruel enemy, be trapped in an abusive marriage? Uh, I don't know if I can think of many worse things. And yet, since the second century, many parts of the Christian church have made very harsh, very restrictive rules about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And yet Jesus said his yoke was easy and his burden was light. If broken vows are what in fact constitute grounds for divorce, then that has huge implications. Just a little bit more about this, and this is a preview. We'll see next time that there are four grounds for divorce in the Old Testament, in Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 24. And we'll see that those four grounds are reflected in marriage documents, they're reflected in wedding vows, kind of from the reverse angle. Normally the groom makes a number of promises in the ancient world, but they all boil down to fidelity, to providing for the other, uh, to love. And there are some illustrations of this, even with God. Some people say, well, divorce is always wrong. Well, God divorced Israel. Look at Jeremiah 3.8. Not immediately. There was a lot of grace extended, but eventually enough was enough. And he didn't sin by divorcing Israel. It was The sin was the covenant infidelity on Israel's part. Now, that's in the 8th century. In the 6th century BC, God's going to divorce Judah. We read about this in Ezekiel 16, where God kept all four of his marriage vows to Judah, and Judah messed up and broke all four of her vows. Again, the sin isn't the divorce. It's the, it's the covenant infidelity that led to the divorce. And divorce was not immediate. Much grace was extended, just as it should be in marriages. If my wife makes a mistake, I don't say, okay, I better divorce you. But we have, we have a tiff. We have some disagreement. Okay, it's all over. No, of course not. We do everything we can to save that marriage. So this brings us to the topic of, of marriage's permanence. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 5 and 6, 
For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Or the old versions, let no one put asunder. This is often offered as a clear passage saying that we cannot divorce. But Jesus didn't say that we cannot separate. He said, let us not do that. He's not saying it's impossible to end a marriage. He's saying we shouldn't. Others would say, well, marriage is permanent um, because marriage is um, a covenant. And in a covenant, uh, you, you forgive no matter what. And you, Well, yeah, but even in God's covenants, there's a point where enough is enough. And a covenant like the new covenant of Ezekiel 36, 37, maybe that shouldn't be read back into the Torah. Marriage actually is a contract. It always was, and a covenant, both. But to say it's a covenant, unlike a contract, is simply false. If it's a contract, there are terms, and if one party breaks it, the other party um, is freed. Here's a third thing people say about the permanence of marriage. Didn't Jesus say that the two become one flesh? So we're one flesh, so we can't be separated unless one of us dies. Well, that doesn't work either. Paul refers to prostitution in 1 Corinthians 6. And he says that, uh, you know, should I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Don't you know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is said the two shall become one flesh. And he's referring, of course, back to Genesis chapter 2. Paul's not saying that if someone had sex with a prostitute, they're married or they're together permanently. That's not what one flesh means. That has to do with emotional, not just physical unity. And it has to do with marriage. So being one flesh doesn't mean that the two spouses are inseparably connected, even if they should be, any more than that prostitution creates a permanent one flesh relationship. Here's another thing people say. This is a fourth argument. They'll say, well, Romans 7 says that only death justifies uh, remarriage. Let's look at what Paul says, Romans 7, 2 uh, to 3. Well, actually, 1 to 3. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband's still alive, she's an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Well, to use this passage, which is about our relationship as Christians to the law of Moses, and that's what Paul's talking about in these chapters, is not right. That's a misuse. It's not a comprehensive passage on grounds for remarriage. And besides, Paul doesn't say she's, she's uh, no longer married to him only if the husband dies. He simply says that death would end the marriage, which, of course, it would. Paul doesn't say that's the only thing that can end a marriage. 
That's Romans 7. Of course, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says desertion could end a marriage. There's more than one way for marriage to end. And Paul's not trying to cover every instance. He's keeping an illustration simple. An illustration is about the law, not about family. A fifth and final thing people say uh, to argue that uh, there can be no remarriage because you're married to her or him until he or she dies is the claim that marriage is a sacrament. Now, in Catholicism, in uh, Anglican or Episcopalian teaching or Lutheranism, uh, I guess in Orthodoxy too, you have sacraments which are viewed as something that cannot be changed. They're permanent. One of those is ordination, ordination to the priesthood. Even if a priest is immoral, he still remains a priest. Well, firstly, we're not supposed to have priests. We're all supposed to be priests. But even so, uh, I would say if someone's immoral, then he should no longer be a priest. Isn't it the same with marriage? We say, well, no man or woman can dissolve marriage well, because it's a sacrament. But that's not the language of the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that this is something that uh, brings into being a mystical state of being that's irreversible. That is a that understanding is from the Middle Ages. And so those are five reasons that the notion of the unbreakable marriage bond is not biblical. So we need a coherent approach. We need to be careful students of the scriptures and, of course, not jump to conclusions. I believe that most marriages can be healed if both partners are willing. But broken vows will eventually kill a marriage. In that case, divorce is simply the coroner pronouncing the body dead. The coroner is not the one who has killed the body. He's simply recognizing what happened. Divorce sometimes is not the problem. It's actually the solution. In summary, we've looked at the pagan and Jewish background. We've seen that grounds for divorce are directly related to marriage vows. And we've seen that the five reasons given why nothing can end marriage uh, that they're not right. None of those five is correct. Marriages can end before the death of the spouse. However sad, unfortunate that may be, they can happen. And we're going to look at that further in the next lesson on Old Testament teaching on divorce and remarriage. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's series on To Marry or Not to Marry. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas' teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.